0: Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, I just wanted to give you all a short introduction to this five-part series on Islamic spirituality. I was very excited to put together this series because Islamic spirituality or Sufism has been a big interest for me and a system of thinking that I turn to time and time again to solve major obstacles and challenges I face in my personal life. All throughout my years of studying, I was blessed to have the subject matter as a core part of my training, so I've had a wide exposure to it through both books and practitioners. And I think in the current climate, it's more important than ever. Now, the first few episodes are a little more theoretical, so if you feel the information is too much, be sure to check out the episode notes, which I think will help you navigate through the material. I get more practical in episodes 4 and 5. And, as always, I'm open to feedback. You can leave comments on the Facebook page and Instagram, both under the name Making Sense of Islam, or you could go to makingsenseofislam.com to submit an email. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Take care. So, we have, Alhamdulillah, in our tradition, we have many texts of the Quran and many texts of the Hadith that we often go back to that provide for us some kind of framework of understanding or framework of of first principles. And one of the unique features of Islam is that it is very much a first principle type of tradition in which the Qur'an, relatively speaking, compared to sort of other uh, uh, religious texts, is on the short side or the concise side. Certainly when you read the Qur'an, uh, you know, you can read uh, verses that are very, you know, Alif Lam is a verse, all right. So what does that mean? You know, and then you get into the Tafsir, and so it's very concise, and it's sort of like um, concise on purpose, right? So, so it gets us to think. And what happens when you have concise texts? And the Prophet ﷺ himself, he said about himself that one of the things that he was given was Jawama Al Kalim, that he was able to summarize very complex things in very short words so some of the hadith you know la darar wa dirar there's no harming and no reciprocal harm well, what does that mean you know so there's a there's a lot of commentary about that so these are like pr- principles and one text in particular helps us understand and place an intellectual map of the islamic sciences and it's it's one of the you know it's one of the teaching texts that we always come back to and you all know this hadith, but let us let us remind ourselves with it. Uh, the hadith of Gabriel. Gabriel, alayhi salam, manifested in, uh, in a man, in the shape of a man, and the angels, in our belief, they have this capacity. And he came up to the Prophet, salallahu alayhi and uh, the, the, the narrators of the hadith, they found this very peculiar for a few reasons. Number one... Uh, they said that he had jet black hair uh, And he had ultra white clothes Meaning that we're in the middle of the desert And you know, we're all uh, are, you know, rolling up our sleeves And we're do- getting the water and doing this And there's this guy, he, he looks like you know, He's, he's like immaculately dressed Not a blemish, so that, that was very striking And none of us knew who he was not that like, we couldn't find him on Facebook, meaning that like, no one in Medina knew who this person was. Like, we all know each other. This guy is definitely not from here. And then he comes up to the Prophet Sallallahu and he puts his knees at the Prophet's knees Sallallahu and he puts his hands on his thighs. And this is a sign of uh, humility and respect of a student coming to a teacher, okay? So then Gabriel says to the Prophet Sallallahu he says, you know, O oh Muhammad, what is Islam? Man Islam? So, therefore, what follows will be Islam. So, the Prophet ﷺ, he says, Okay, Islam is that you, you say the Shahada, or the Shahadatain really, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. You pray five times a day. You fast the month of Ramadan. You pay your zakah. And you go to Hajj once in your life if you're able to find the way to do so. So, Gabriel says, Sadaqt, you know, you, you have spoken the truth. So, the Sahaba said, We found that very strange. We, we thought he's coming to ask. But then he's like acknowledging, yeah, that the Prophet is right. So then Gabriel asked the Prophet what is iman? Man iman? And, and we'll translate them later, but for now it's Islam, iman. And then the Prophet said, iman is that you have iman in, you know, that you believe that there is one God, or you believe in Allah subhanahu wa Taala, uh, the divinely revealed books, uh, the prophets that were sent to mankind, the angels that you believe that there is an hour of reckoning after we die, yom al qiyama, and you believe in destiny. It's good and it's bad. So Gabriel says, Sadaqt, you know, you have spoken the truth. And then he says, "What is إحسان?" And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi says, "إحسان is that you worship Allah as if you see Him, and if you don't see Him, know that He sees you." And then Gabriel says, "Tell me about the fi- when is the final hour?" And then the Prophet ﷺ said, the one being asked knows no more than the one asking. So Gabriel says, tell me about some of its signs. So the Prophet ﷺ said, you will see uh, people vying to build tall buildings. You will see uh, that the woman will give birth to her mistress, you know, the, the one that will sort of become stronger or, or more capacity. Um, and some of these signs of the m- minor and major signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah. And then he vanishes. So the Sahaba, you know, they're, they're hanging around like that was weird. What what was that about? So the Prophet ﷺ says, "Atedru Do You know who the person coming came was, and they said, "No, Allah and His Prophet know best." And the Prophet ﷺ said, "This was Gabriel. He came to teach you your religion." dinukum." This hadith. Even though it's lengthy, it's one of those hadith that we always come back to. Um, to the Prophet ﷺ painted for us, and Gabriel painted for us, a framework. And the Prophet ﷺ described this framework as the entire religion. Because at the end of the hadith, he says, Gabriel came to teach you your religion. Meaning the entire religion is summarized in these four categories. And these four categories, even though the hadith is like, you know, half a page long, and there's only four questions that Gabriel asked the Prophet Wasallam, these categories end up becoming huge enterprises throughout Islamic history. So when the Prophet Wasallam was asked what Islam is, everything that he answered were all actions. You say the testification of faith. You pray, you know, you fast, the action of non-action in that case. You pay zakah, action. You go on hajj, like super action. And in the study of religion, the actions of a faith that the faith governs is called orthopraxy. Correct action. So the orthopraxy of Islam is summarized in the sharia. What is the sharia? Sharia. If, I, if somebody said, what is the Sharia? The Sharia is a deduction from the Qur'an and the Sunnah of what we think our best guess is what are the actions that Allah wants us to do and not to do. That's a really big statement. What does that mean? To unpack that, what does that mean? That means, number one, that the entire Sharia is a human enterprise. It's my best guess. I'm not my best guess, but it's Imam Shafi's best guess. It's Imam Abu Hanifa's best guess. It's Abu Yusuf's best guess. It's Al-Ghazali's best guess. That's what Ijtihad is. It's human agency to interpret the Quran and the Sunnah. Why do we say that? Why don't we just say, well, this is what Allah says in the Quran, so you must do this. Because we approach the text, in this case, the divine text of the Quran and the Sunnah, and yes, the sunnah is from the realm of the divine because it's inspired. The Prophet's speech is inspired and he's infallible with humility. So I don't want to say for sure this is what Allah wants us to do because I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure that I'm right, but I could be wrong. Wallahu a'lam. So the entire enterprise of sharia is our best guess of this is what Allah wants us to do. Our best interpretive guess of the Qur'an and the sunnah. But all the sharia is, is dealing with action. So if somebody comes to me and says, what is the ruling of the TV? I'll say, well, that's a non question. Because there's no such question in the sharia. You have to associate it with an action. What is the ruling of buying a TV? What is the ruling of watching a TV? What is the ruling of picking up the TV and throwing it on my brother? What is the, uh, some kind of action. All those actions are different. But there is no ruling, there is no hukm shara'i, there is no ruling of the sharia on things. What is the ruling of, you know, this object? There is no such thing. What is the ruling if I take this and I break it? I got to pay the mosque back. What is it if I take it and steal it? You got to give it to the mosque and make tawbah. What if I take it and hit you with it? Because you asked an inappropriate question. No, I'm just kidding. So the, the, the sharia deals with some kind of action. So the dawat, the, the, the essence of something, there's no ruling. There's no ruling in that. It has to be with actions. And that is why when the Prophet ﷺ describes the, what we call popularly the five pillars of Islam, these govern our actions. Orthopraxy. Do, don't do. al la ta'fal. The next question, the Prophet answered something different. He was asked about faith, iman. And the Prophet ﷺ said, you have to have belief in these six areas. And in the study of religion, belief is what is called orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Correct belief. So what does it mean to be a Muslim? Other than the actions. You see, you can't have a religion without orthopraxy and orthodoxy. So you can't be like, I'm, you know, I'm a Muslim... um, you know, like culturally. I mean, I know people say that, but I'm saying from the, from the perspective of religion, I'm not talking about anybody in specific, but from the perspective of religion, well, it doesn't work. You, if you're a Muslim, that means you got to do this and believe in that. And if you don't, well, there's some, some like deficiency. So Islam is not just some theory. It's not just a theory that we think about that kind of sounds cool uh, and we write about and that's it. No, it's something that you got to do and you got to believe in. And those two are linked. So what is orthodoxy? Well, we believe in Tawheed, of course. You know, we don't believe there's two gods or one, or five gods. Uh, we don't believe that there is the new god and there was the old gods, like in Game of Thrones. I swear by the new gods and the old gods for those that watch Game of Thrones. We don't believe in that. We believe in one God that is beyond space and beyond time and beyond dimension and beyond comprehension. La al absar that our consciousness and our vision cannot comprehend Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. There is nothing like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, infinite, and exalted be He is without beginning and without end. You know, all of these things, those theology. I believe in the prophets, as we, we talked about for like five, six months. We believe that the prophets are infallible, that we believe that they did this, that they did that, that we know some of their names, we don't know all of their names, so on and so on. Belief in. The angels, what's that? Certain things that they do that they don't do. Yawm al Qiyamah, that this is not all there is, that we will die and then we will be resurrected. And then there's something called destiny. And the best way to understand destiny, the Prophet Sallallahu said, is whatever hits you, was meant to hit you. And whatever misses you, was not meant to hit you. So don't sweat it. If something happens to you, that was what your destiny was. If it doesn't happen, you can kick and scream all you want, it just didn't happen. And that way you can release yourself from a lot of anxiety. Because you, you can want all you want, but if it's not written for you, it's not going to happen. And even if it was narrow and you missed it, I mean, alhamdulillah, but it missed you, so don't sweat it. Anyway, well, all of those things are like unseen, right? al not We don't see God, we don't see the angels, uh, we, we don't see all of the prophets. You know, We don't see destiny in the sense that we see some kind of uh, cosmological phenomena. We see destiny in its, in its output, of course. We have not gotten to Yom Al-Qiyamah yet. Alhamdulillah, we still have some time. So it's, yuminuna bil Ghaib, The people that believe in the unseen, Allah says. So belief is the unseen. It would be very easy if you had to believe in physical objects. But that's why we call it faith. So, so far the Prophet Wasallam has talked about two things. Correct action and correct belief. But Gabriel asks something else. He asks two more questions. He says, what is Ihsan? And Ihsan is one of these words that's difficult to approximate in like translation. Ihsan could be excellence. Ihsan could be beauty. Ihsan could be perfection. Um, All of these and more. But Gabriel asks him about a third dimension. You know, what is the perfection of religion? What is... Excellence in religion. I don't want to be average in my job. I want to excel. I don't want to be average in my class. I want to excel. I want to be preeminent. I don't want my business just to get by. I want my business to thrive. I don't want the mosque just to, you know, we have a mosque. I want the mosque to excel. That, that extra umph Gabriel asks about. And the Prophet wasallam said, in the most beautiful of ways, he says that Ahsan is that you worship Allah as if you see Him. And تَعْبُدَ Allah كَأَنَّكَ tarah As if you see him. Knowing that you will never be able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course. And if you can't worship Allah in that zone, at least know that he sees you. And we're gonna, that's what all of this is about, so we're going to come back to that. And then Gabriel asks him about the signs of the final hour. And all of that stuff in the study of religion is called eschatology. What happens at the end and beyond the end of time and this life and all of those things. So we have orthodoxy, uh, orthopraxy, correct action, orthodoxy, correct belief, and now we have our eschatological framework that there are certain things that are going to happen towards the end of time. Why? So we know that they're happening. So no one comes and says, that well, we made this up. How could the Prophet ﷺ sallam you know, 1,400 plus years ago, foretell all of these things that are are happening. This is not like Nostradamus, where there's like these vague things, and you could say this, and you can say that. No, these are very descriptive things about um, rapid means of transportation, about the proliferation of certain architectural structures, uh, the proliferation of certain um, uh, entertainments, uh, like there's a hadith in which the Prophet Assam said that towards the end of time, people will be wearing musical instruments on their ears. That's beats. He gave you the, the, the that, that's beats right there, right? And like Bose, uh, noise cancelling uh, headsets. That's what he said. I mean, how could, if you're an Arab in, you know, in Arabia at that time, what does that mean people will be wearing instruments on their ears? I mean, that's very weird to hear then. But look what the Prophet ﷺ said. And some of those things, some Muslims, they get tripped up, and they think all those things are negative. And that's why some people think that instruments are haram. This is like a tangent, but uh, musical instruments are haram. Because they say, well, the Prophet ﷺ said that the use of musical instruments will be coming. So the ulama, they look at those things two ways. Some of those things are bad. Like the Dajjal coming, that's bad, you know. Injustice in the earth, that's bad. But some of those things, the Prophet was just saying, if you see them, then know that that's a sign that the Qiyamah is coming. Anyway, that's, we can talk about that later. So there's an eschatology. So the Prophet, in a sense, didn't leave us hanging. He didn't say, you know, believe good stuff, do good stuff, uh, try to be excel, and then no, and leave us. No, he said that there is something that will happen after this. And to prepare for that, he taught us that certain things will happen. And then there's this Ihsan stuff which we essentially call our spiritual tradition, spirituality. In Islam, we call it تَزْكَيَةُ nafs, You know, the purification of the self. So the Prophet ﷺ laid out this framework of these four major areas. And usually the eschatology is usually studied in the science of theology. So in theology, we have three things. We have ilahiyat, things that relate to Allah, Nabuwat, things that relate to the Prophet wasallam, and Sam'ayat, things that we hear that the Prophet wasallam, told us will happen at the end of time. So as the intellectual map was laid out, and as it, it proliferated throughout Islamic history, the ulama organized these things in different disciplines. And they're different disciplines, different trades, different crafts, different areas of expertise. But the thing about Ihsan is that Ihsan governed the Prophet? He said is something very, very broad and very almost vague worship Allah as if you see Him. How do you do that? How do you get to the point where you can worship Allah as if you see Him? What the Prophet was leaving for us as a clue is that this is largely based on our personal experience and our personal journey. In life as we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So whereas correct action and correct belief are principle-based, uh, of course everything is Quran and Sunnah-based, that goes without saying, but as they are you know, principle-based and their actions and you can deduce and it's almost like mathematical. Well, the spiritual journey of each individual is very different because we're all different. So in addition to the Quran and the Sunnah, Understanding the verses that relate to this, understanding the hadith to, to relate to this, we have a huge tradition of people's own experience. And we have literature and uh, genres of writing and luminaries and very saintly figures throughout Islamic history that we look to to understand how do you, what does excellence look like? What are the clues to excellence? What is the path to excellence? How does one increase their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How do they master themselves? What is the self? What is the body? What is the soul? Why sometimes I feel like I'm in the zone, but other times I feel depressed. Now you see, all of those things are just human emotions and are human condition. It's very different than the sharia, which governs outward actions. So even though all of these things are related of course you know it's part of the same subject matter which is our faith you can see you can start to see how this area of spirituality or this area of personal experience of Islam or this area of one's personal worship of Islam has a layer of personality that the other things don't have when somebody says, for example, as we mentioned recently in the stories of the prophets, um, but we read that David did this, or we read that Solomon did this, and I was saying, no, that's impossible, because we believe that the MBA are infallible. And if they're infallible, it means, you know, one, two, three. So that's it. It's very clear cut. So that's a principle. If we have something that's against that principle, then we, it, 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 it collides with the principle, and if it's against the principle, it will lose. So we say... Oh, that's not a correct hadith, or that's a weak hadith, or we didn't understand it We explain it in light of that principle. It's very academic. But when it comes to spirituality, it's very different. It's almost the exact opposite. Because each of us has our own spiritual journey that none of us can be on on behalf of the other. We can help each other, we can remind each other, but each person's journey is specific to their condition to their makeup if we look at how this is the hadith right this is the framework now what happens in like very high level you know summary uh, in like a clip you know like what happens with all of these things moving forward just so we can i want to place all of this so when we talk everyone has some kind of framework to go back to let's take the first question that the Prophet Sasam was asked. What is Islam? Islam is that you, you do these things. Okay, I want to be in this area of, Islam, of our faith, right, Islam with a capital I, right now. I want to learn all of the things about how to pray, and how to fast, uh, about all of the things that Allah tells us to do and not to do. All of the Qur'an and all of the Sunnah. If I was able right now to look at all of these things, and remember, as I've said many, many times, and I hope everyone understands this by now, that that's the minority of the texts. So the Qur'an is 6,363 uh, 6, verses, only about 300 verses deal with the sharia. The hadith are about sixty to 80,000, only two, 3,000 of the hadith deal with the sharia. So if I take all of that and I put them in front of me, I'm not gonna be able to understand everything the same way as you would understand everything because there are some verses Well, you, you could take it to mean this, there are some verses you can take it to mean that. You'll find this hadith and you kind of say well it means this, you'll find this hadith that means that. So there's a plurality embedded in the understanding of the Sharia verses and the Sharia hadith. So let me give you an example, because I think maybe that was, some people are nodding off. That could just be because I'm boring, that's also possible. One day the Prophet was giving the Jummah, khutbah, and he started giving the khutbah, and a man walked into the, to the masjid late, and he sat down. And then the Prophet he stopped his khutbah and he said, Sulaykh, because the sahaba's name was Sulayk. He said, Sulayk, stand up and pray the two uh, sunnas of the, greeting the mosque. So, I mean, you don't want to be pointed out by the Prophet in the middle of the mosque. So he got up quickly and he prayed, and, and then he sat back down, and the Prophet continued... The khutbah. That's the hadith. And that hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari. Okay, So no one is going to say, oh, that's weak. Or, everyone agrees that this is in Sahih al-Bukhari. And unless you're the ultra-minority uh, or, or ultra-confused people that don't believe in hadith and all of that stuff, w- th- those people will park to the side will come back and will help them out after Ramadan. We all agree that if it's in Sahih al-Bukhari, that means it's a, it's a strong hadith. But Imam al-Shafi'i, who was one of these people that said, I want to understand this Islam stuff, he understood from this hadith that if you walk into the mosque, therefore his deduction is, if you walk into the mosque late, rather than sitting and listening to the khutbah, you should stand and pray the sunnah. No one would deny that conclusion. I mean, the hadith was pretty straightforward. Imam Malik, who was another one of these people that tried to understand all the Islam stuff, he said, no, no, I, I understood from that hadith something different. That hadith was specific to this guy, this, uh, this sahaba named Sulayk. And actually when you walk into the mosque late, and the khutbah is starting, you should just sit down and listen. That's the sunnah. So we have two different interpretations of the same text. Why did Imam Malik differ And from Imam al-Shafi'i? Imam al he has a principle that when he reads a text, he takes the prima facie reading of the text. If he understands from the original Arabic of the hadith, or the original Arabic of the verse, a meaning, unless it's like some bizarre meaning, he says that's what the meaning is. So that becomes a principle. Imam Malik, he did something else. Imam Malik lived in Medina. And he was um, amongst all of these people that were tabi'een. And all the people that he grew up with, they were the people that grew up with the Sahaba. So he said, I'm going to do what they did. Because whatever they're doing, they learn from the Sahaba. And I've never seen anyone in Medina do that, that comes to the mosque late. People come late all the time. So then somebody asks Imam Malik, what do you mean? And he said, you know what, I investigated this hadith and I found something very interesting about Sulayk. I asked all the people in my community in Medina, who are the taba'een, who grew up with the Sahaba, who grew up with the Prophet ﷺ. And they told me, you know, the funny thing about Sulaykh is Sulayk was poor. And he didn't live in the city, he lived in like the suburbs. Or not the suburbs, but you know, he lived outside the city. And he would come to the mosque on Jummah. Because, you know, the, the more wealthy Sahaba, they would, they would help him out. And that day he was late. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't want him to lose his opportunity for help. So he made him stand up to pray. So that the Prophet ﷺ in an indirect way would show the community that Sulaykh was in town, guys. He's not sick. He's in town. You see he's praying. So, you know, give him, give him some help after Jummah. Two different interpretations from the same text. So there are some people, for example, uh, they get upset when, when somebody like me talks about these different uh, madhahib for example, or, or schools of law, and they don't understand that this is the genius of Islam. This is an unbelievable thing that we have a plurality of legal opinions based on the same text. That There's not just one singular way of looking at it. How many of these ways have we had over 1,400 years of Sunni Islam? We've had over 90 of these ways and methods and principles of addressing and, and trying to interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So this equips us with, a, with a, a toolkit that's you know unparalleled in human history. And this is what the discipline of ijtihad is about. So all of the Islam stuff that the Prophet Wasallam talked about, keep in mind that we're only talking about the first question that Gabriel asks, all the Islam stuff the, Prophet, uh, the Muslims took in these different directions. And these different schools of, of legal interpretation were based on the schools of interpretation of the Sahaba because after the death of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam there were different schools amongst the Sahaba. If we assume that there was about a hundred and a hundred and twenty thousand companions at the death of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam how many of those do you think were experts in this Islam stuff? If I asked. How many do you think were like the experts in the Sharia? Yes, about 18. 18 out of over 100,000, you know, is a very small percentage. Means that even though the Sharia occupies this big thing in our consciousness, it's really a mi- minority of the community and, a re- and an area of super. Uh, expertise. So the, the companions, including uh Sayyida Aisha, salam, the wife of the Prophet, she was a mufti, she had her own opinions. And 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 the other companions that were in this field had their own opinions. And they taught the generation after them, the generation after them, and then as it moved, it splinters and it splinters, and we have this huge, beautiful, it's wallah, it's almost like an orchestra of all of these instruments playing together that make a sound that is, if, you, if you, 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 you are blessed to be inside that, it's like an orchestra that's playing the most superb music you've ever heard. Of all of these legal nuances and interpretation of the same verse, of the same hadith. Now when it comes to belief or theology, iman, it was a little bit less diverse that in, in Islam, even though we've had many theological attempts at interpreting what these six articles of faith are, in the world of Sunni Islam, we, only two schools emerge. One school is called the school of Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, the Ash'ari school, and the other one is Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, the Maturidi school, which is the minority. And the differences between them are very few, and, and most of them are just... Uh, technical language differences. So these people in these schools, they organized themselves to address this area of theology. You know, we want to understand what our belief is. And as Islam spread particularly to the East, what did Muslims encounter in the East? I mean, they were already encountering uh, Jews at the time of the Prophet and Christians, but now they're, uh, they're encountering Zoroastrians, now they're encountering a different type of Christians in the north, Nestorians, followers of Manichaeism, Hinduism, in its you know, unbelievable plurality of schools of interpretation, Buddhism, and there are three main schools of Buddhism, but in each school, like us, you know there's splinters and splinters and splinters. So I mean, Islam is spreading east. The ulama encountered all these things. You know, there was no Wikipedia, there was no YouTube, there was no Google. So here you are a Muslim, you grew up, you know, in the in the uh, family of the Prophet Wasallam, in the uh, companions of Medina, and you know, life for you is Muhammad Wasallam. that's all you see. And then you go east, and you're like, whoa, they're worshiping fire. Whoa, there are all of these statues. Uh, uh, but I thought, you know, the Prophet told us not to worship. Stat- so they start discussing all of these things. And it's no accident that th- the Muslims that opened these regions, they didn't destroy the, the Buddha statues in Afghanistan. Those were the, the other people of more recent times, right? And they didn't see Buddhists and Zoroastrians and the Parsis, and the Hindus, and all of the, They didn't see these people as kuffar. They're like, these are Ahl al-Kitab. These are people of the book. We have to deal with them the way that the Prophet taught us to deal with the Christians and the Jews. Well, what made them conclude that? Because they took a deep dive. Again, remember, imagine, I know it's, it's very frightening to think of a time in which Google and Wikipedia and these things don't exist, and YouTube, but there was a time. I remember that time where these things didn't exist. You guys remember Encyclopedia Britannica? That was the only way I knew how to look up something, Encyclopedia Britannica. But So they had to talk with these people, they had to sit with these people, they had to maybe translate these things, they had to read Sanskrit or you know, whatever the, 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 the way the Vedas were translated, or the, the books of Zarathustra, all of these they had to translate, someone had to read them and translate them and understand them and start engaging in them. And because of that engagement, you know, the Sharia stuff, well, you know, the Sharia is what we do, but what do we believe in? Well, Buddhism is like non theistic. Does that mean that the non theism of Buddhism is atheism, is a belie- not a belief in God? Well, the ulama, they're like, no, you know, they, they have all these like theological gymnastics. And they, because the ulama, they were good people, they wanted to get along with everyone, not like the Muslims now. They just wanted to get along with everyone. Now you come into the mosque and you say something, someone doesn't like you, they want to kick you out. But the ulama, they were, they, they, were, they were good people. They were the inheritors of the, the mercy of the Prophet wasallam. So the, theolo- the theology that expanded was largely aided by our encounter with people of other faiths. The first intellect and the second, and the philosophy, Greek philosophy, and Hindu philosophy, and all of these things, the Muslims were like, oh, that's an interesting question. You know, atoms and causality. Uh, and the interaction with Buddhism, Buddhist causality, and Greek ca- that's very interesting. What would Islam say about that? So it, theology is expressed throughout time. And this is our inheritance that we're talking about. This belongs to all of us. But it was organized in these two schools. Well, the same is the case for the spiritual tradition. And in our spiritual tradition, the, the tradition of Tazkiyya, there, it's, it's helpful to think of three types of taskeer, or the big, you know, word that, that you know everyone is always when I, when we say it, people look at me, you know, of tasawwuf of Sufism, because this is one of the words of this science and this discipline, and I use it purpose, It is a discipline. It's not. It's not. Uh, we say in Arabic, oh, this person like a darwish. It's like a negative thing. He's a sort of like. You can't rely on them. Oh, he's a darwish. Even my teachers used to say that. Oh, no, you're like a darwish. You have to get with it. But, but that's like a negative connotation. Maybe it's not very helpful to say. But, but tasawwuf is just like all this other stuff. It's a discipline. You know, the whirling, uh, wandering dervish. You know, he just sort of gave up on, on the dunya. So there is the tasawwuf or the tazkaya of the salaf. The first, you know, few generations the generations of, of course, the Sahaba and the Tabi'in, but like the Tazke of Imam shafii You know, Imam al-Shafi'i, he like, read the Qur'an like 30 times over a weekend to answer one question. I mean, if that's not a saintly person, I don't know who is. I mean, we'll be lucky if we read the Qur'an 30 times in our lifetime. He read it over a weekend to answer a question, to deduce the proof of one principle in his legal framework. When uh, al Nafisa uh, السلام, one of the descendants of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was asked about Imam Shafi'i because Imam Shafi'i, he, he was a contemporary and when he died, before he died he said, I want Sayyidina Nafisa to pray on me, Janazah. So Imam Shafi'i's uh, Janazah, there were two Janazahs. One is when he died, they, they took you know, the body to Sayyidina Nafisa's house and she prayed Janazah and then you know, they had the regular Janazah and he was buried. So they asked her, what do you think about Imam al-Shafi'i? She said, oh, he was a good guy, he used to know how to make wudu very well. wudu." That was her commentary about him. And that's very interesting, that statement, because what do you have to do before you pray? You have to make wudu. So the key to a successful prayer is in the wudu, it's not in the prayer. If your wudu is hasty and, and full of you know, mistakes and stuff like that, your prayer will follow. So while wudu is like a physical thing of washing, there's also a metaphysical or spiritual or inner dimension, as Imam al-Ghazali says, asrar, the secrets of the wudu that put your your physical, psychological, spiritual selves in alignment when you stand to pray. And because Imam al-Shafi'i was an expert, one of our experts of the law, what she was trying to say is that he was a saintly person because he understood that the secret to the worship, your journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is in perfecting those things that Allah asked us to do in the first place, which is our prayer. So there's this tazkiyah of these type of people. People like Imam Abu Hanifa, people like Imam Malik, uh, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was, was imprisoned and tortured for his belief for standing up for the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu I mean he was like he wasn't a martyr I mean he didn't die in that but he was abused because he he was like a you know conscientious objector because the 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 at that time was trying to use um, the power of the state to coerce people to believe in a certain type of theological Islam, which in, now we look back and that's part of the uh, her- heretical groups of Islam, the Ma'tezalites, in some of their beliefs. And Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he stood up for the truth, he stood up for the sunnah of the Prophet and he was imprisoned for that. So other than the fact that Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was like Superman with hadith, and he has his own school of legal interpretation, he was also a saintly person. So there was the teske of those type of people. And then as time marches, the tazkiyah organizes itself in different schools the way that the, the, the legal experts organize themselves in schools. And this is where we get you know, the different Sufi orders. The Shadili, and the Rifai, and the Naqshbandi, and the, uh, the Qadiris, and uh, um, you know, everyone has their own, their own way. Why, do we, why are they called that? Well, it's the same way that if you study the school of Imam al-Shafi'i like I did, you, you call me a Shafi'i. Meaning, it's just an identifying that, so if you want to dis- discuss with me law, you'll understand the perspective that I'm coming from. It doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong, or I'm better, my Sheikh can beat your Sheikh up, and stuff like that, it doesn't mean that. It's just an identifier. Like I, it's like my alma mater, I went to this university. So this is my alma mater, so you know where I went to school. And around what time, so you can place me. And these orders have a scholarly side, and they also have a public religion side. And it's the public religion side throughout Islamic history that usually people refer to in the negative. You know, saint worship, and... Uh, All of these funny things that common people do around old mosques and you know these practices and This is what make people go crazy and yell bidah, and you know and 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 all that stuff And that's the stuff that I don't want to talk about because that's not what this is. This is about us It's about increasing our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala But I wanted in this first day to give everyone a framework so so you can understand where I'm coming from And then there's a third type of tasawuf or tazkaya, which is more philosophical and that is where you find, uh, for example, like one of the, you know, um, most popular people of this is people like Ibn Arabi, where he is trying to tie all of it together. Philosophy and uh, esoteric thinking, and the Sharia and the Hadith, and then there's this verse, but it really means this, and he's tying it all together. And even though he was a he was himself a jurist and himself a mujtahid and all of these, he was a a polymath. His real um, added value to the intellectual history of Islam was in this philosophical things. And the philosophical Sufism, as sometimes it's called in the academic literature, was also, ironically, very well expressed in Shia Islam. And after... Uh, Imam al-Ghazali kind of dealt like this uh, almost death blow to Greek philosophy, what is called peripatetic philosophy. Peripatetic is just a, you have to say these words to to show off, right? Because, you know, or else I'll forget these words. All it means is that people walked around because Aristotle and Plato, they used to walk with their students. So when it's translated in Arabic, they call it al or you know, those that walked. Anyway, so Greek philosophy, there was a school of Greek philosophy in Islam. Al-Kindi, Ibn Sina, Al-Farabi, all those people, right? And Imam Al-Ghazali, you know, he did like this kung fu move and like he like almost dealt, like dealt this death blow to that philosophy. He's like, these guys are actually advocating kufr in some of their beliefs. And he wrote this very famous work called Tahafut al filasifa the incoherence of the philosophers. And then Ibn Rushd responded to that. And he wrote Tahafut al-Tahafut, the incoherence of the incoherence, but it wasn't as popular. One of the effects that Imam al-Ghazali had, because some people in the West actually attack Imam al-Ghazali for this, like uh, your friend uh, Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Tyson, your best friend Neil deGrasse Tyson. (laughs) I'm just kidding. One of the they 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 don't understand what Imam Al Ghazali was really doing, but they think that he was like anti-intellectual, anti-rational. That's not what he was doing at all. But what, one of the effects that Imam Al Ghazali did is his resistance against that type of belief pushed philosophy into the direction of Tashkeer. And one of the uh, they call it the school of Marifa of of gnosis or gnosis, and that's the school of. Um, Sufism slash philosophy in the Shia tradition, like the people like Mullah Sadra, who is one of the great thinkers of Islam, uh, and, and many others, right? But he's like, I'm just mentioning the names because these are the most famous. And that's a third type of, of tasawuf. So why am I saying all of this? The reason I'm saying all of this is I got many messages over the last two weeks, from, from uh, either direct or indirect. Uh, maybe some of it's, I'm, I'm scared of my own shadow but I got the sense that people did not understand what I wanted to talk about. So I'm, I'm saying all of this to show you that I understand the intellectual map of the faith, and that there are certain things we're not gonna talk about. There are many things we're not going to talk about, and there are certain things that I only wanna talk about. And what I wanna talk about is I wanna talk about the tazkiyah of the early generation, and how those people, the people that, that, that heard the message from the Prophet and acted on that message, how they internalize that to be preeminent and excel at their religion. You see, because Islam is a gift that we've been given. And we want to excel at it. It's an opportunity. We don't want to just take it for granted. We want Islam to motivate us, to make us happy, to make us fulfilled. The Sharia doesn't do that. I studied the Sharia. It's really boring. And I studied the theology. It's even more boring. This is the stuff that excites us. This is the stuff that actually has real meaning. Of course, the Sharia is important. Don't get me wrong, because... We want to know if what we're doing is right or what we're doing is wrong. Um, and, you know, for better or for worse, I studied that stuff, so now I'm stuck with it. I've got to answer those questions. But that's not what you think about all the time. You know, you don't think about, if I'm, you know, in the desert and I can't find water, but I only find this, you know, uh, Budweiser, should I make do with it or drink? You know, no one thinks like that. You I know, mean, that's just sort of, you know, legal uh, mumbo-jumbo that we use in the lesson to help us understand certain things. But we wake up every day, and sometimes we feel like crap. And sometimes we think we're on the right path, and we make a commitment, and when we think that we're all inside, you know, everything is aligned, something (laughs) catastrophic happens outside our life. We're like, Ya Allah, what's going on? I thought I was doing the right thing. Or you're like in the zone, you know, it's Ramadan, I'm going to hold on to this feeling, you know, I'm never going to let it go. And then like 24 hours later, it's like all gone. How do we regulate all of that? How do we, does that mean we're bad? Does that mean we're good? Does that mean Islam has nothing to offer us? Those are the type of questions that I want us to explore together and we can discuss together. The point of is how do we take what we've been given and excel at it? And how do we make it push us forward, not hold us back? <laughs>